Coming up on Leading Edge. How can a country develop itself as most of its people don't have the appropriate skills to develop not only the current economy, but the economies to come? So our motto, which is, we build the people who build the businesses that build Africa, has to drive our business school. This is Leading Edge, a Henley Business School podcast. Welcome to Leading Edge from Henley Business School. I'm Thomas Mason. In this third series, we're discussing topics as varied as when to hit the off switch if you're suffering from techno stress, how the pandemic has caused a great reset in customer expectations, if green finance is the new black, and why we need to slow down if we want to achieve lasting change faster. Today, I'm joined by John Foster Pedley, who's the Dean and Director of Henley Business School Africa, which is based in Johannesburg. He's also the founder of MBAID, which is a social entrepreneurship scheme to offer executive education opportunities to disadvantaged people and non-governmental organisations in Southern Africa. And it's through this organisation that John leads anti-corruption and good governance initiatives all of which gives him a really unique insight on our topic today, which is the rise of the activist leader. John, welcome. Thank you, Thomas. It's a real pleasure to be here and connect across the, not the oceans, across the Sahara, I guess. Halfway around the world, but yeah. you're, well, you're in absolute crystal clear quality. And thinking then about Henley Business School Africa, it's a wholly different institution from, from some of the ones we're used to here. So just tell us a little bit about that mission of yours, John, of, of widening access to business education and some of the work that you've done educating the next generation of leaders, if you like, where you're based. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we're, we're, we're a part of Henley Business School. We're a branch of Henley Business School, but we are registered in South Africa. We're also part of the University Reading, 10 hours south, um, and that's it. In some ways, we're very much the same as other business schools. What we do is we take people, we give them the skills and the capability and the thinking to shine in their organizations and business. But in other ways, we're different. And, and that's ma- mainly because our context is so different. So we've been down here and nearly coming on towards 30 years. With only over the last 10 years, we've really hugely grown. But our context in South Africa is one where we are intimately faced with the issues of uh, human engagement and poverty and and differences between wealth and poverty so starkly that it gives us an incredible crucible really to uh, try things out that may be useful for that 80 90 percent of the population that doesn't have the privilege of being part of that highly developed world and and who are the engines of growth of the future and you've been on quite a growth story. The number, the scale of your business school has gone up. Loads of people studying MBAs. Yeah, it's it's been extraordinary. And and the reason is because we have a purpose. And I'll come back to that later. We've grown from five people to eighty full time in ten years. We've been the fastest growing business school, I think, in Africa that I know of. We've got the largest scholarship program, self funded, of any business school in Africa. And we have something like two thirds of the total number of MBAs that that University of Reading and Henley Business School has in the world, including the UK, just in our country. And um, we've won a number of awards, and that's great. But that's not what gets us up in the morning. What gets us up is our purpose. And that's very much something, really, that we're going to talk about in the sense of the link to prosperity for the communities that some of the people that you educate want to create, and this sense of capitalism, really, not just being about profit and that if you are an executive you're from henley and you've got an mba those executives 
have perhaps a moral element, they need to think about being an activist leader as well. So I believe, John, you've got some quite controversial views on capitalism uh, and you think that in, in some senses it's broken. Tell, tell me about that. Well, I, I don't know how controversial that is. I mean, I'm, I believe that the challenges to the traditional Milton Friedman model of capitalism are becoming absolutely mainstream these days. Our context is that we have the highest Gini coefficient in the world, the difference between rich and poor. Uh, we have extremely high unemployment. We have a history of being colonized, uh, apartheid, and then state capture. And we have uh, all our talent is really locked up in the poor people. And why, why that matters is not even a moral issue for a moment, although it is. It's because how can a country develop itself as most of its people don't have the appropriate skills to develop not only the current economy, but the economies to come? And so South Africa has no possible future without educating massively people and giving them the skills. So our motto, which is, we build the people who build the businesses that build Africa, has to drive our business school. It's not that we give the MBAs that allow people to sit in corner offices and pull down big salaries. We give people the capabilities that allow you to become a cornerstone of a dynamic emerging economy. And that's how we see ourselves. Now, if that's controversial, so be it. But I think that the old model of capitalism, which is the Milton Friedman one, which is about really fundamentally making profits within the limits of, uh, for your shareholders, within the limits of regulation, if you like, is moribund and never worked anyway. And I think we're seeing extensive consequences of that sort of myopia and narrow-minded across the world, both in environmental, but also financial and human consequences. And I don't think, um, I think that matters. And that's why we, that's what drives us. Well, it was a while ago, to, to, to refresh our listeners, those of us who are, who are not economists, I believe it was 1970, this chap called Milton Freeman, very influential. He said that a company's sole responsibility is to shareholder. The point of that is that it's about making money and creating dividends. And that, that's what capitalism is about. And I suppose the, the theory, if I can play devil's advocate for a moment, John, is, it, is that if you create the profits, they somehow trickle down, they create the jobs, job done. But that, that was 50 years ago now. Yeah, well, I mean, we can see how well trickle-down trickle economics has worked in the world. And we can see how the, the sort of focus on profit for shareholders has, has removed, and, you know, I'm being ironic, has removed property and, and not caused social and environmental consequences. It has. So there's an abs let me get this right first. There's absolutely nothing wrong with profit. Profit is essential. If you don't make profit, somebody has to clean up your mess. And excuse the vulgarity, you're incontinent. So, you know, somebody has to do that. But I don't think capitalism has to be like that and probably was never truly intended to be. It's been a useful vehicle. So if you think the purpose of a business is to make profit, then and the only thing that's constraining that profit is regulation and within the limits of the law and regulation, and that regulation has to be given to you by prescient, wise, organized clever gov uh, governments and, and uh, savvy politicians who, who maintain their, uh, their, their direction through multiple administrations, then so be it. But life ain't like that. And in fact, you, I don't believe, or I am, are not motivated as profit as our primary engagement in life. You know, a purpose of a business is the purpose of a business. And um, what a business needs to do is fulfill its purpose and in that, and in doing so, create profits, pay off the investors, etc. 
But the purpose, you know, the, the end point of saying the, the, the purpose of business is profit is just the descent into inhuman profiteering and, and the sort of sophisticated chicanery you get on sh- uh, some stock markets, you know, some of, the, some of the things we saw that led to the big collapse. Um, we have three types of capital in the world. We have financial capital, which according to, um, I think it was UNESCO about a few years ago, five years ago, is about 32% of, 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 human, of, of wealth in the world. We have human capital, which is intangible assets and education, training, intelligent health, and, and things that employers value, things that, you know, loyalty and doing things right uh, is, is another form. And natural capital, the things we have in the world. And what's happened with the traditional model of capitalism, it's focused on profit, but not prosperity. So in a country like ours, where you, we take people out, executives out to help NGOs and to see what's going on uh, in the, the uh, townships, but also in the SMEs that are struggling to make it work, or we do virtual reality immersions into markets in Nairobi, you can see that this is not working for people. And you can see that that model of Milton Friedman's is also predicated on, on good behavior of people, that corruption can't exist, really, because if corruption exists, it distorts a whole chain of capability of, of people able to, to offer their resources effectively. If you are two generations, three generations working in you know, domestic helpers with no money, and you've saved everything you've got to get your kid to go to a reasonable school, and then you save everything else and the grandparent has to let that kid go to university and that kid gets a, a good degree and learns how to be an entrepreneur and starts a business and is super skilled and keen. And yet he does a, he faces a tender where it's given to somebody's son or, or partner or relation who hasn't got the skills. Then that, that person who's built the skills doesn't get the opportunity. And a person without the skills wastes tons of money in, in bad work and bribery or whatever. And that, what that does is shrinks the economy and it shrinks the opportunity and it shrinks morale and motivation for people. Why should I help myself and learn those skills if the system isn't right? So I don't think you can find that this model of capitalism can work. And you've got a, you've got a really interesting idea, which is about which is about being an activist leader. But there have been some other attempts to, if you like, add an extra layer on that should make capitalism more honest. And you, you might argue that, that that they they're not very effective. I think one of them is corporate social responsibility, hasn't it? This is the idea that uh, the, the company has tried to do some kind of good in the world, but it, it's the, the critique has become it's become very much a box ticking exercise. They give a bit of money to charity each year, but they don't fundamentally change their purpose. Uh, there's another there's another big trend at the moment. It's called ESG, environmental, social, and governments, and there's a lot of money going into companies that are able to show that they are not just not bad companies, but they're actually positive companies. I mean, do you, do you think either of those approaches go to begin to help improve the model, or have we got to go a lot further? They absolutely do. Look, I'm an educator, and and what I speak about is not stuff I've read in books per se, but through learnt experience of working in developing countries and seeing what I think works and doesn't work and what other people do too. So I think, you know, social good work through ESG work and uh, triple bottom line, etc., are really important, but they're, to me, staging posts. Because you can you can do good works, but unless you're systemically doing something, you're not going. To, this is, I'm sorry to say, but it's a bit like the issues we had around Black Lives Matter. So we've been talking about removing racism for years and years, and and I and people would say we're not racist, 
But it's not until that other people who are the objects of that are saying, no, the system is racist. No, of course it's not, we would say. But it's not until you see a, a ghastly thing as such that happened to George Floyd that you start to see that, yes, this is deeply wrong. How can that happen to a human being? And you start to see large movements that are not just black people um, and African-Americans doing it, but but why people do involving that, but involved in a way that in a heartfelt, passionate way, where they're seeing the system that they are part of really needs to change. And, and that's the same with capitalism. You can do these things that will, so, will be add-ons to the system. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm not against capitalism per se. I'm, I'm for the use, uh, you know, the sort of benign and evolved use of it. But if that capitalism cannot eradicate poverty in, uh, in itself because the, the organizations are working to a sort of corporate structure and legal structure and a sort of hidden philosophy that 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 primacy, makes primacy for profit. It's very hard for them to actually sustainably do anything really deep. This old model then might be, if you're a CEO, you, you know, your job is kind of keep out of politics, really, for the most part. Uh, and your sense is that that's just going to be increasingly difficult now and it's not just the company that's got to have a purpose but it's actually it's the people working within it and that's what you would call a corporate activist so just tell us what you mean by this phrase corporate activist i would say activism had two or three aspects one is to become more politicized if you like which everyone's ran away from as a ceo but i think everybody understands now that you have to take some stance everybody doesn't of course but a lot of people understand you have to take a stance um, then there is a sort of more internal activism, which is to um, f make sure that corruption doesn't happen. And you can't do that with pontificating and lecturing. It has to be, it has to be acted. Now, very interesting. I was an airline captain at one point, and um, I remember the Institute of Aviation Medicine in the UK getting worried about airplanes crashing, you know, captains of aircraft crashing their, their airplanes, or like, captains of industry crashed their businesses. And so they got everybody to talk about what was going on behind the scenes and, and they got the press, press off their backs and, and they put this out in a document called CHIRP, Confidential Human Instant Reporting Procedures. And for a moment, it looks like the skies were the most dangerous. You'd never get in an airplane. We fell asleep across the Atlantic. We put the wrong things on. We pulled the wrong lever. You know, we landed on a taxiway, not the runway. Uh, we woke up in mid-Atlantic, all three of us were asleep on the flight deck, and all that sort of stuff you don't ever want to know about. But this suddenly became public, and everyone started to self-regulate. And, and that capacity to self-regulate is really important. So what corporate activists do, they, they, increase, they increase the transparency of behavior and decrease the power distance. And the point of decreasing the power distance is to allow feedback from people who are challenging on flight decks. We, we got the co-pilots now to challenge the arrogant captains by following a uh, what's called a um, graded assertiveness process called PACE. You probe, you say, so you say, I think we're going, this is our speed, Captain. And the captain's supposed to say, wow, that's a bit close to stall speed. And if the captain doesn't say, you say, we're at 137 knots and it's 20, 20 knots from the stall speed and our speed is decreasing, Captain. That's a sort of um, alert. You know, and then uh, the C is a challenge. You say, Captain, you have to put on power, lower the nose, increase speed, or we're going to stall and we'll hit the ground because we haven't got enough room to recover. And that's a challenge. And then finally, the E is the emergency. And then you take control. You say, Captain, I have control of the airplane. Um, and what you need is something in corporate life is similar to that. 
And you've written, uh, maybe you can give us a few more tips, John, but you've written about what the corporate activist should be like in practice, and they're certainly not a shrinking violet. So you say people should stop shouting and complaining and do something useful. Speak from a stance of human equality, not as a supplicant or a victim. Embrace optimism in the face of fear and suffering. So you've just given some examples there of people who are perhaps struggling to perform but what do you think are the top tips from day one if you you, you've got a new job you go into this office if you get to go to an office how do you present yourself how do you be an activist whilst holding down your job i'm going to answer that slightly laterally but i hope not too long i worked in new zealand for a while and the one great thing about new zealanders are they look you in the eye straight in the eye and if you have airs and graces and come across as better than anybody else, whatever they do, generally speaking, as a culture, they'll tend to kind of disregard you because, you know, being able to be human first and be equal first uh, is important. The other example I would say is that, and I'm going to have a slight, I'm a, I'm a Brit, a, a middle-class Brit who's been living in South Africa for many years. I've had to go through my own journey of understanding what I was conditioned with about living in Africa. I've come to understand it when people say to me, you know, these are the consequences of colonialization. I understand. The best I can relate it to is if you're in an abusive relationship with somebody for a number of years, you'll probably, it'll probably erode your self-worth and self-value. If you've been in 200 years of, of colonial thing where if you are um, a person from who's not privileged or in some case a black person or whatever the other, uh, you know, could be any part of the world, and you don't get the opportunity, and people have told you you're not intelligent. And I had a good friend who's a mixed-rate person in South Africa. He's an engineer. When he went to the university first day, the, the professor said to him, you cannot do as well as the person next to you. And that was something that was deep and endemic in South Africa. That has an effect. It's what Steve Biko would call a colonization of the mind. I know things are real. It's an undermining of the, of the quality of consciousness in your own stance. So often people in Africa are trying to be as good as the West. And trouble is, they don't need to do that fundamentally because they, we're all the same race. We're all pretty much the same. We have endowed with the same intelligence. So if you want to be an activist leader, you, 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 you manage equality with a relentless discipline and, and passion. You see people as, as having not equal capabilities, but equal as humans and, and different capabilities, which you can do, but not better or worse. So you look people straight in the eye. And that is, one thing you do, and you engage with people, because you want those people to want to work with your organization and feel that uh, their potential is going to be um, lifted. The second thing is when, when you're sitting at a dinner table in a restaurant, or in our case, a barbecue or bribe, we call them, and somebody makes some random racist or, or whatever it is, othering comment, is you don't politely stand by. You say, you say politely, so I understand how you think like that, but I just have to say I think differently. You often don't have to do anything else than that, but just instead of tacitly colluding with that thing and, and not rocking the boat for the sake of politeness, you just politely say, I, I, I'm different, I feel different. That's often enough to change the dynamic and, and open up broader conversations. The third thing is you've got, to, you've got to have a sense of causality that goes beyond the boundaries of your business. Your business will have consequences or will be using people in society, and you have to... Go in and understand what they are. So get in there. That's why we do NGO work. We go in and see these people. And we understand that as an organization, we can actually make a difference in life. And the amazing thing about that is that it changes you. I've got a photograph of a, of a British student holding a South African 
child from a township, that, and his name was James, and the kid's name was Temba, I think. And a little kid of about five, smiling away, held in the arms of this of this British executive, you know. And you look at a picture and say, "Wow, British executive comes to do good in Africa." But then you look at James's smile; it's got a voltage about triple that of Temba's. He is loving it, and what he's finding is a certain humanity that he's he's kind of lost. And and the big question here is, how much of you is welcome at work? So how much of me? How much of you is welcome at work? And in a in an activist environment, you're trying to include more of people, so they come with a discretionary initiative and creativity, and and their passion, which you need, um, as well as their their cognitive capabilities and their coordination. And I think a lot of the Milton Friedman type thing is is excludes a lot of the person from work, whereas the passionate activists want to include more of the person because they want to create and they need people to be innovating, visualizing, creating new sets of products. And you can't do that as an automaton. That's very interesting, isn't it? And as you say, a simple thing like just speaking up, it doesn't necessarily need to turn into an altercation no. or, or a fight or a bit, but it just to say, I respectfully disagree or, I, I you know, that, that those are not, are not my values. And do, do you think there's an argument that companies need to be given some better rules about how to be good corporate citizens. There's an interesting initiative that's happened recently. We had the G7 summit in the UK. Uh, our Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, led this initiative that they've been trying to do for years, and they, they finally got somewhere with it, which was agreeing uh, a global minimum rate of corporation tax. And they, they I think they managed to negotiate it down to 15%, which is still above what you would get in Ireland, where Apple had been uh, sending a lot of its profits. Do, do you like this idea of, of the rules being made a bit fairer. I mean, some some of the Silicon Valley tech firms they say, "Come on, you know, we d- we don't mind paying more tax, but it's still our, is our duty to our shareholders to make some money. So you've got to tell us what the rules are that that we can stick to them. Do we need a bit of that? Well, it comes to what's the, what's, the, what's the role of the legislators and government in business, you know, and and if they are to to be the adult policeman, the child and errant, potentially villainous business, um, which, you know, is, is, the, is the one extreme. But I think absolutely the rules have to change, uh, but the rules have to change in, in many different ways. I really enjoy what, uh, uh, what happened there with, uh, at the G7 in terms of that starting attempt. Of course, the first backlash was it's not nearly enough. You know, you know we're still having people, you know, we're generating money here, we want 42%, 45%, 38%, whatever it is. But there's the start. But Milton Friedman idea is, I suppose, I mean, if you are just just pushing on towards trying to make more profit, you'll, you'll get the rising tide, the work, etc., etc. But the argument to that is that nobody ever is really involved, was really motivated just by making money. Most of us want to have, a, have significance in life. And we spend most of our life at work. And while we might say, I just go to work so I make, so I make money to to do my real life outside, why don't we make work our real life? And if your real life is more than just making money, it needs to extend to your deeper values, the sort of values you want to see in society. Most of us don't want to see extensive poverty and and abuse. Most of us don't want to see breakdown of law. You don't want to see people, what we're seeing here in South Africa now, riots because of poverty. You want people to have decent, normal opportunities. I'm driven by my children, the world I want them to grow up into. I'm hurt when my child's friends, who might be Chinese or South African, 
is confronted with any form of othering or racism. Um, I'm hurt when my child feels that his or her friend is, is different. I want them to grow up in a decent world that is not shrinking with species full of plastic, dangerously uh, violent, but it's a world that maybe isn't growing so fast, but is one that has a quality of life that's great. And that's a, an honorable an honorable ambition for me, and probably for all of us. Um, if we only focus on our own kids doing well in an impossible world, we'll, we'll want them to be rich so they survive in that. But there's a bigger target here, and I think all of us need a bigger target, which is to go beyond our businesses and understand that our activities affect the world. So why don't we absorb that, understand it, and make those effects more consciously beneficial to everybody? Um, and don't leave that to the politicians, because you know we we affect the world, and we must um, we must just we must just embrace that. And I think the great leaders are great engagers, and I think that I think that's why being an activist is important. You're, you're resonating with issues that people really, really engage with, really matters to them. And I think you become a better business person. And people want to do business with you because of that. Certainly has been in our case. Um, so you've got the ones on the limits. And, um, but ultimately, if you're an activist, you want the middle to move. And you can do that by railing from outside or doomsaying. Or you can do it from the inside. But you probably need both. And you probably need to work. You probably need to drop the and the either ors and work with an and both world, and and just be comfortable when things move better, and take a long view of this because it's three steps forward and two back, or the vice versa. I don't know which some days. Well, finally, then, John, you've given us in some senses. It's bit, hopefully we are we have stood up and we are slightly alarmed at some of the challenges about our our capitalist world, and and you've certainly shocked us out of our complacency. But you've also talked about wanting to create a positive vibration, if you like, a bit of a a lasting legacy, and 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 bringing it back to Henley Business School, where you actually are trying to get the next generation of leaders and get them in, out into the world. Do you feel a bit more optimistic about the way things are going there? Do, do, you, do you think that that generation is going to turn things around, is going to bring purpose and activism back into the corporate world? We are fundamentally deeply optimistic as an organisation. Now, being optimistic doesn't leave, mean you live in a Pollyanna world, as you would know, and you don't talk about dark, hard things. You know, the dark, hard things there, if you make reality your friend, just because you see things that are difficult and dangerous and hard to take, doesn't mean you're not an optimistic. It means probably if you can see them, you may be an optimist even deeper because you want to change them. So underneath Henley in Africa, which has grown tremendously, the fact that we have a strong purpose, which is about people's potential, and we don't espouse it, we, we show people and they understand how they've grown, they can feel how they've grown, they feel different. And we, they learn new skills, system thinking, critical thinking. They're able to do more. They have more impact and substance, and they reflect on that. I never knew I could do this. The fact you're doing that to people doesn't give you an end point that you're absolutely right. But what it means is you can, you can manifestly, palpably see you making a change and doing good. And that has given us a really good business, a really healthy business that attracts some of the best people I know to want to work with it. Our faculty internationally in the UK who come out are tremendous. Our local faculty are excellent. And I think it raises everyone's games because we, we, make, we make our performance standards very clear. We have high performance standards. Uh, it's not like it's easy. It's really, really hard work. It's extremely hard work. But if you've got a purpose, you can do that hard work. And that purpose and the results gives you a sense of optimism that, you know, which is not that everything's going to be all right, but 
I'm on a way. And even if I don't get to where I want to, at least I push the boundaries to a certain point that the people after me can take it further. And if you think of your kids and their kids, that's what we have to do. Right, well, John, you've given us really there a bit of a new rule book, a bit of a new lens and layer to add on to what we might think of as the old model of capitalism, how we can reinvent it, and a bit of a a kick, really, a bit of motivation that when we go into a job, uh, we have to be an activist. We can't just leave all of our values at the door, but if we do it in the right way, if we speak up when you say then we actually can stay in the job. They're a really useful set of rules there. Thank you very much, John. And just thinking about raising our game into the next stage, the new normal, there's a question we're asking everybody on this third series of Leading Edge. And this is, as we go forward, and we don't quite know what it's going to be, as you said, uh, is there one thing that you're going to keep doing a little trick you found during the pandemic perhaps from working from home and is there one thing that you want to stop doing you can't wait to stop doing the one thing you should keep doing for me is you should this is going to sound so new agey but it's not you should just breathe um just breathe and because our minds are so full of anxiety and worry and such compelling arguments that this is real this is dangerous um just let those let those thoughts run and and, and just breathe and settle and see what comes up then because what normally comes up it can be frightening, but also what normally comes up is a much richer and bigger perspective of the world. Um, and it lifts you as a leader from just dealing with all the operational challenges into being able to see bigger patterns. You can't see big patterns when you're terrified. You really can't. So breathe, chill, relax, know yourself, manage your mind. I think that's do more of. Um, and, and do less of... Oh man, just do less of worrying. Just go out there and do it. I mean... Heavens, you want to, you want to, you want a job, or do you want to own that job? You know, just do it. You know, have a go. Well, I'll end with that thought on one of the PowerPoint slides you you sent me, which was, people should stop shouting and complaining and do something useful. Hopefully, we've done something useful here by helping us raise our game today at Leading Edge. John Foster Pudley, all the way from Johannesburg. Lovely to speak to you. Thanks ever so much for joining us here on Leading Edge. Thank you very much, Thomas. Next time on Leading Edge. Once we start thinking in a sustainable way, there's a recognition that you create additional risk by behaving non-sustainably. So it's a case of thinking about risk in a slightly different way, not just in terms of finance, but the future of the world that we're living in. Leading Edge is a Henley Business School podcast. This episode was written and presented by Thomas Mason. Visit hly.ac slash leading edge for more.